A warm welcome to everyone listening to this episode of Area D, Decolonizing with Palestine. In today's episode, I am speaking with Dr. Ibrahim Shikaki about his chapter, The Political Economy of Dependency and Class Formation in the Occupied Palestinian Territories Since 1967, published in Political Economy of Palestine, Critical, Interdisciplinary and Decolonial Perspectives. As always, you can find the full bibliographical information, as well as further literature and information in the show notes. Dr. Ibrahim Shikaki is an assistant professor at Trinity College, Hartford, Connecticut. In 2019, he defended his PhD thesis titled The Political Economy of Growth and Distribution in Palestine, History, Measurement and Applications at the New School in New York. But he will tell us more about this himself. Welcome, Ibrahim. It's great to have you on the show. talking today about your essay, uh, The Political Economy of Dependency and Class Formation in the Occupied Palestinian Territories since 1967. First of all, please tell me, what was your trajectory as a researcher? How did you get there? Um, well, it really started after my uh, undergraduate degree. I uh, studied economics and political science at Gazette University in Palestine and Almost immediately afterwards, I worked for the Palestine Economic Policy Research Institute. Um, short is actually MAS, M-A-S for Mahad Um I worked there for a few years. I was introduced to you know, the idea of research, but more particularly research on the Palestinian economy. And then after my uh, PhD, which kind of focused also on, let's call it critical aspects of looking at the economic lens in Palestine, um, one of my dissertation chapters was about economic history. And one of the things that I learned from doing research as a younger researcher was a little bit critical. You know, we had a lot of international financial institutions uh, telling us how and what we should do on Palestine directly and indirectly. You know, being able, first of all, to do a PhD in a place that's open to critical approaches in economics, heterodox approaches to economics was very useful, but also then the work on my dissertation and focusing on the importance of economic history, I think is also what led to the, the end version of that chapter. And when did you turn to political economy specifically as a lens through which to analyze the Palestinian situation? Well, I think from the very start, there was what I had first understood as political economy. You know, coming from Palestine, we talk about politics a lot. And whenever we want to talk about economics, there's always this thing in the back of my mind that, you know, the economics is connected to the political. So I think very early on, even as a student, you know, reading work on the Palestinian economy, I knew there was that connection. But I think it was, again, after the PhD, where I kind of understood a little bit maybe in a more nuanced way, what political economy means. And by that, I mean kind of introducing the role of distribution, power dynamics, class, not just the idea of politics and economics put together. I think those notions of distribution and, and class and, and, and power dynamics were very important for me. And those I was really introduced to theoretically and also empirically during my PhD. So there were not necessarily a, a fixed part of the bachelor's in Gazette? 
I mean, I can think of maybe the course that I took called the Palestinian economy with Dr. Muhammad Nasser. And I was interested in writing about Palestinian labor in Israel. Um, and I think that's my very first paper on the Palestinian economy. Before that, as a teenager, I had worked in a pillow factory in Tulkarem, which is the town that I'm from. And it was always interesting to me. So these were subcontractors. So the raw material would come from Israel. Then we would work and you know create the end product. And then we would ship it back to them. And eventually it would get returned back to the Palestinian market. Obviously we sold at a much higher level. So for me, that was kind of the first way, obviously at that time, I wasn't thinking about it in that sense of thinking of what happens to the value added. Where's the value added? I mean, it took me 10 years later on to understand what value added means and where its creation comes from. But I think that's why I was interested when he asked what I wanted to work on. And Palestinian labor in Israel and for the Israeli economy, I think is one thing that, that came up. I would say maybe that's some of the first ideas that came to my mind. You already started talking about working in this in this factory and the different relations that are, well, not unique to Palestine necessarily, but very unique to, to occupied locations where you have the workers that are so part of this economy, but sort of outside of the legal boundaries of a country. But what are the, what are the main factors that are shaping the Palestinian economy to this day? I mean, obviously, and, and that's the title of that chapter. I definitely think that the connection with the Israeli economy is one major factor. So both the connection to the labor market, what is the percentage of the Palestinian labor force that works in and for the Israeli economy, but also the goods market, how much of what Palestine imports and exports is with Israel. I think those Two things, the good and labor market, definitely play a very important role in shaping what the Palestinian economy looks like. The other one is, is more internal, and I think it has to do with the class of businessmen, and unfortunately they are mostly men, businessmen who kind of came back after the early 1990s with the political process. I mean, there are several people who have talked about this aspect much more than me, Adam Haniyeh definitely. He's done a lot of great work on talking about that new class of Palestinian capitalists, but other people like Tariq Dana at Doha and others as well have talked about kind of crony capitalism and that connection between the business and the political side in Palestine. So I'd say kind of just the two main themes that I think play the major role, I'd say that external Israeli connection, but also the internal kind of class aspect, which again, not surprising, is the two parts of the name of the chapter that, that we're talking about. And you argue further, um, not just for the use of the political economy as a lens, but also the theory of dependency. I'm very interested in the hearing from you. I mean, I read it in your article, what the evolution of Palestine's dependency has been throughout the years. Since then, it was a formerly occupied country to being a country that has its own governing body, but is still occupied and also connected to, to the outside world and international institutions in a different way now, of course. 
Yeah, it is. And I think you mentioned it before, how obviously there are peculiarities for each particular economy and the Palestinian economy is now different, but also that you have a lot of commonalities between not only, um, you know, those entities or states or economies that are under occupation, but also this generalized idea of the global south and the global north. And so that's where actually the idea of dependency comes from. A lot of it originates actually from Latin American scholars who were writing about the periphery, so people in the global south and the core people in the global north. And, you know, there are a lot of different iterations of that up until the 1990s with the world system. Walshstein was talking about the world system approach. But in my view, I think it boils down to those very two basic, simple sets of movement. On the one hand, movement of resources from the periphery to the core. Those resources can be natural resources, they can be human resources, minerals, whatever you want. But then the movement of goods, finalized goods, high value goods from the core to periphery. I think that's what kind of defines the dependency relationship wherever you look at it. Now, you're absolutely right. After the 1990s, the political or the Oslo process, what happened is those dependencies on the labor and goods market remained, but there were new types of dependencies. Uh, Matthias Vernengo actually talks about this more, but today we might not have that exact same dependency that we had before, but there's this dependency on the world financial system. The way that I see it in Palestine is dependency A on international aid, and that's something that did not exist before as it did after the 1990s, but also in the last 15 years, dependency on private debt. So if you look at data about how much Palestinian cons I mean, consumer private debt has increased since 2006, 2007, and where those credit facilities have actually gone, you see that they have actually created, again, a new dependency on alternative sources for, for financing and consumption. So those would be, in my view, the new types of dependencies that were created in the last 25, 30 years. How do you view these, not the creation, but maybe how, how these dependencies arose in the past and how they also arose specifically in the sense of dependency on NGOs, so not obviously financial institutions, but uh, international organizations that have clear political goals? I mean, without doubt, if you look at the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, but also kind of units that have existed in the economic sphere of Palestine, like the Quartet, you know, you have these groups that maybe do not have that direct kind of influence on Palestinian decision making, you know, if you want to be, you know, very generous, but at the bare minimum, everybody can agree that they can be very persuasive in terms of economic policy. So something that a lot of people have witnessed is that, you know, you find this report from the World Bank on the Palestinian economy, and then three, four years later, suddenly a lot of the policies that are implemented by the Palestinian Authority kind of match um, not only the policies themselves, but even the rhetoric around them. I think a lot of this actually started very early on during the political process. So the World Bank had six huge volumes in a report that was called An Investment in Peace in the 1990s. And it had six different volumes on agriculture, private sector, 
a lot of these approaches were kind of very much later on implemented during the Paris Protocol, which is the economic agreement between the PLO and Israel, and the subsequent economic planning policies and, and uh, you know plans that were set by the PA. So that's, I think, one side that you can definitely see where the influence from some of these international financial institutions, in terms of non-governmental organizations, again, maybe that's, maybe I should add that as a new type of dependency that was created. But you definitely see that after the 1990s, a, a new segment of society, and I think I talk a little bit about this in my chapter, Jamil Hilal has done wonderful work on this, on what he called the new middle class. And so a new middle class that was created partly by the establishment of the Palestinian Authority and the types of jobs that the new public sector created, but also those who are working more on the professional side, including the non-governmental organizations. In terms of size, actually, they're not that large. So if you look at the percentage of Palestinians who work in non-governmental organizations, it's not that large. But a big portion of those who have higher degrees, right? Because if you look at the wage differentials, they actually can offer relatively higher wages than both the private sector can and the public sector, which means that in one form of brain drain or whatever you want to call it, if you compare that to the public sector or work in Israel, it's actually very minimal in terms of the number of people. But again, qualitatively, I think it's very relevant because we are talking about those who have relatively higher levels of education. And also a lot more influence. And again, this is a discussion about the middle class, right? And the role of middle class in society. You definitely see a lot of those ending up we don't have elections for a very long time, but in terms of alternative forms of representation, you definitely find more of that class represented than, than let's say, the working class. A recent topic that, at least in, in my circles, both in Berlin and in Palestine, uh, keeps coming up is the topic of the NGOization of resistance. So the somewhat the outsourcing from the or insourcing from the streets into into the offices of the NGOs, um, which again is more bound to financial structures and international funding. How likely do you think it is that there will be a turn away from this this process, also given recent developments and, and stronger resistance in the streets again? But also considering the the involvement of the middle class in these structures, how likely is it that there will be a turn away from this? or perhaps a combination of both? I mean, I think that's a very interesting question. It's a very relevant question as well. But so let's kind of tackle a little bit in two parts. So the first in terms of the angioization, again, going back to your last point, which I think is very relevant to always repeat, right? I mean, Palestine is not a special case, right? You know, just like a lot of places around the world, what happened after the 1990s, after the fall of the, to these types of organizations, there's some really interesting work that was done by the Rosa Luxemburg Institution in Palestine about this. It's about NGOization, but also about the type of volunteer work. So I remember it was work done by Helga Boomgarten and Karen, now I forget her last name. But there's a really interesting part where they talk to people who used to do volunteer work during the first intifada in the late 80s and talking to people 
who are doing volunteer work kind of after 2010 or something like that. And you can see the stark differences between how people view what volunteer work is and why they're getting into it. I definitely recommend kind of taking a look at that. So, I mean, that's the first part that you mentioned. But again, I, I do believe that it is a very relevant question because of what's going on today. So on the ground, the last few months, what you can see in Palestine is a lot of organizing, militant organizing, particularly under a group that calls itself the Lion's Den, right? So these are people in Nablus and Jenin and different cities, particularly in the northern part of the West Bank, but also going to, to different places, who have basically come to fill the void that the Palestinian Authority has left, right? The Palestinian Authority, because of the security coordination agreements that it has with Israel, if the Israeli army is going to go into one of these cities, they directly contact the Palestinian Authority and they tell them in no unclear terms, we are going to do one, two, three, four. So your security forces have to go inside. And so these incursions into Palestinian towns have increased drastically in the last few months in one way. And there are a lot of other things that we can talk about, but in one way that is one of the organic reasons why several of these militant groups have kind of come to power, if you want, recently in the last few months. And it is in one way kind of shifting, right? There's been a lot, it's interesting to take a look at surveys and public opinions in the Palestinian society. But recently, I think there's a, there's been a lot of kind of, you know, disillusionment with, with what the PA is, what it represents in one way, how directly or indirectly, intentionally or in, unintentionally, it has become kind of a buffer between the Palestinian people and the Israeli occupation, not in a good way, kind of in the other way. So I think all of this is qualitatively different. You don't see what has been happening in the last few months in especially the West Bank happen for a very long time. And I think one of two very good examples of that are not just these kind of military actions that Palestinians have been doing to defend their towns, but also how the public has been behind. So, you know, you can hear calls to go out and support the Palestinian Authority approach at the UN for memberhood or statehood, whatever it is. And maybe some people will be forced from schools to go on these protests, or maybe you find 10, 20, 30 people. But when that group, when that Lions Den group told people, in support of people in Shafat refugee camp, we have a strike today. Everybody in Palestine striked. We have not had that type of solidarity behind a group in a very long time. So I do believe that those developments and developments happen, you know this very well, every couple of months in Palestine, but those are qualitatively different. And I do think it has to do in one sense of this kind of disillusionment with the Palestinian Authority, but it is not unrelated actually with the idea of dependency. Dependency theory, that idea of the core periphery, always necessitates a group, a class within the periphery that their interests align with those from the core. And so if you want to apply that to Palestine, 
You can say that the Palestinian Authority, in one shape or form, is doing that role, is being the quote-unquote comprador of the periphery that has certain interests, at least, aligned with that of the core. It's interesting that you mentioned the support for the Lions Den there, because it's also it's very strongly felt, I don't know about the American, U.S.-American diaspora, but in the European diaspora, it's very strong right now. Depends from place to place, of course. Depends also on the level of criminalization in the varying places, such as Germany. So, of course, there it's, um, it's a very different story. At the march, at the end of October, there was, was the March for Return in Brussels, and it was a march towards the European Parliament as, as a group that gives money to the Palestinian Authority. It was a very clear march, very clearly directed against the authority. And there were a lot of people wearing the masks of the lion's den. Personally, I think it's the intersection of several things that leads to this type of support. I mean, definitely the fact that these are people who are literally putting their lives on the line here. And several tens of them have lost their lives is one aspect that I think is, is very strong. But the other has to do with the narrative. I think that's something that the Palestinians have been very much dissatisfied with the narrative that the so-called leadership has taken. And I say so-called for a variety of reasons. Perhaps only one of them is that the last time that we had election was 2006 and 2007. So quite a long time uh, for them still to remain what they call leadership for the Palestinian people. So I think it is also that. It is the narrative of saying that, you know, the Palestinian people can also protect themselves and the Palestinian Authority is supposed to be doing something that it is not. And you can go to one extreme saying that, in, in fact, what it is doing is targeting Palestinians on a lot of different aspects. I want to go back to the to the frame of your article for a moment, because you also mentioned it just now with the NGOs that they're located mainly in, in Ramallah and Beit Lahem and Gaza. But the the term you use, at least in, in the non-economic field, the West Bank Gaza Strip, um, instead of, for example, the, the OPT, uh, was for me a very unusual term. But I also wanted to ask you why you combine it in this lens, because for one, how would we, in the sense of unity, include the workers inside of the state of Israel as a political entity, but also to what degree does it make sense to think all these workers together since they're, they're working and they would also be striking or organizing under completely different circumstances, under Jordanian labor law or under Hamas or under Fatah or inside the state of Israel, to how far can we think these together and why did you choose to think the West Bank and Gaza Strip together? especially for the current times. So I'm, I'm also, I mean, I'm just reminded now by um, work by Leila Farsakh. I remember I was with her on this podcast with Al Shabaka, and she did a really good job, much better than I'm going to attempt now, of saying, listen, what we're actually talking about are four different economies. So she was talking about the economy of the Gaza Strip, the economy of the West Bank, the economy of East Jerusalem separately, and the economy of Palestinians who live in Palestine 48 or Israel proper, whatever you want to call it. And so she said, from an economic perspective, it actually might be worth studying them separately from a political perspective, right? We try to look at them uh, um, together. Now, 
she probably said it in a much more eloquent way that, than than I did. But I think here's the point, Shuruk. Um, even starting from the fact of talking about like 1967 as a starting point is is very limited. To be honest, it had to do with how convenient the data that I had was, and unfortunately, sometimes that in some types of work and some types of research does you know limit you a little bit. So in the in that sense, whether you want to look at Israeli data that existed up until the early 90s, and then after the 90s, there was something that was called the Palestinian Central Bureau of Statistics that was created after 1994. That data all is only about the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, including East Jerusalem and the West Bank. But for example, it says nothing about Palestinians who live in, in Palestine 48. Recently, in the last few years, there actually have been calls, maybe on the margin, but I remember this article in El Safir by my good friend Raja Khalidi, who talked about maybe we should look more at the Arab economy of Palestine. So looking at all of those aspects together. Again, all of this depends on what is the lens that you will look at, because I wanted to do both a quantitative and a qualitative lens. That quantitative lens, I think in one way, kind of pushed me towards talking about the OPP or the West Bank and Gaza Strip um, as an entity. But realistically, I completely agree, especially since 2006, 2007, the political division between Fatah and Hamas to have a almost a separate type of economic dynamics happening in the Gaza Strip than those in the West Bank, than anywhere else in Israel proper. And so, again, I, I don't have a good answer for for why it makes sense methodologically to do that, but it does make sense in terms of the data that we have. I might also add, and I'm not sure if this is a good justification or a bad one, but most of the research that is done, whether it is about from international financial institutions or within Palestinian organizations within Palestine, have kind of settled, unfortunately, probably, for that definition of what we mean by the Palestinian economy. Definitely think there's room for improvement there. There have been a few people who have tried to change that unit of analysis, but again, the data realities of that will make that probably very difficult. Maybe a group of uh, new, uh, you know, Palestinians in diaspora and Palestine, Palestinians in Palestine can, a group of PhD students can work on that. In the next five, 10 years, we have some better work done on that aspect. Hopefully, because now that you mentioned the diaspora students also, there's also, of course, a factor that even if, if we think the Palestinians living in 48, so what is also known as the state of Israel, together with the other groups, we still have not included the refugee populations. We have not included those who are migrants who, who moved. To... Which, is, which are the majority, Shuruk, right? I mean, 60% of the global Palestinian population lives outside the river and the sea. Um, mm -hmm. And again, not to, I know you probably have other questions, but... You know, this, again, is something that people have been talking about. Almost 10 years ago, there was a campaign led by Kathman Abulsi, who used to be at Oxford, calling for the elections of the Palestinian National Council, not the Legislative Council that's, you know, in the West Bank and Gaza Strip, 
but the National Council that supposedly represents all Palestinians, so that would actually include Palestinians, you know, in Lebanon, in Jordan, in, in the diaspora. Probably 10 years ago, blockchain did not exist. Now, I'm a very critical person in terms of Bitcoin itself. Having said that, the blockchain as the technology behind Bitcoin has, I mean, a lot of people have been doing some work on how it can actually help in terms of election where you have anonymous results, but you have uh, um, results that can actually be verified. And if we're thinking of getting the Palestinian pulse, where you have Palestinians from all around the world voting on whether it's representatives or their opinions just in general about certain aspects i do think that that's one aspect that blockchain and the new technologies that we have can create and so i absolutely agree with you that um that group of palestinians has not had a say but also is not i don't know if this is the right term but has not been researched uh, um, sufficiently again let's just look economically you know where is palestinian capital where are the you know just in terms of that aspect i think um, looking at um, skills looking at capital look at, at palestinians all around the world is, is definitely something that again has been under researched uh, a lot and also so fractured there is so much research also on the chileans uh, the palestinian chileans but it is in spanish and then we have we again have this division of who who has access to which amount of languages and can i like tap into all these different circles of knowledge and combine these and who who doesn't and which of course which educational institutions collaborate with which other ones and give you access also to yeah. these Going back to the to the element of those exiled or those in diaspora, you mentioned in your article the the vanishing of the former capitalist upper class after the Nakba. What is the involvement of this specific part of the upper class in exile in the development of of the classes Palestine and how are they involved now? Yeah, so I mean, I think this mostly comes from the Palestinian capitalist class that went to the Gulf, right? So they went to the Gulf. Several of them were, were professionals, um, engineers, um, people who did sometimes business as well, and merchants. And they created a comfortable place for themselves in the Gulf. And being comfortable in the Gulf means also having strong connections with the you know, royal families in the Gulf. And in one aspect that actually played a role in funding the Palestinian Liberal Liberation Organization, the PLO, for a very long time. Now, what happened after the 1990s, um, and I was in um, one of the meetings where we had a, a Palestinian businessman who was, uh, you know, old seasoned Palestinian businessman, who was talking about what literally happened in the 1990s, where Arafat kind of called the, some of the largest Palestinian businessmen, you know, by name and got them to meet up and said, listen, you know, we're going to do this thing or we're going to have a, you know, quote unquote state. And so give me ideas in like two days. And this is how a lot of this started. And the point was, if you put money into this new establishment, what you will get, and this is the point of connection here to your question, what you will get is certain monopolies. And so that's how a lot of the monopolies and in investments started in Palestine in the 1990s. Um, Tawfiq Haddad has a great book uh, about this. Several other people have talked about this, but 
Um, and so he does talk a little bit about this kind of peace dividend and and the relationship between businesses and, and power. So I think that definitely was a huge aspect uh, of it. If you look at today, I think it's interesting. Again, the work of Adam Hani is showing that a lot of Palestinian investment is actually Gulf investment. So if you look at the holding companies in Palestine, that under them have businesses in, in various sectors, whether it's finance, some of them actually in light manufacturing, uh, um, some of them in different types of services, telecommunication. A lot of the ownership is actually ownership from the Gulf. So sometimes the, the name is a Palestinian name, but if you look actually under who the ownership is, a lot of the ownership comes from the Gulf which basically means that aside from that very small percentage of the private sector that is under these holding companies, the vast majority of the private sector itself is, you know, teeny tiny uh, economic activity units. I mean, that's what they're called, right? The small, medium, and micro units. There's a whole discussion about micro units and informal economy. But that is how a lot of these institutions are built. and. Again, not surprisingly by by now or you know since you read the chapter, a lot of them uh, are actually in the trade sector. So the trade sector means working also with Israeli goods. So if you look at the private sector entities, I actually had a policy brief with Al Shabaki, particularly on trade. So it's about internal trade as a microcosm of the relationship with Israel. And you see how that particular sector, in terms of the private, not in terms of like the whole economy, but the private sector is dominated by the trade sector. The thing that's supposed to employ people, the private sector, right? Not the public sector that's funded by international aid, not the Israeli economy that hires Palestinian workers. No, the private sector where job employment happens, that itself is also connected to a sector that means the relationship with Israel because 80 to 90% of our exports are to Israel and 60 to 70% of our imports are from Israel. So whatever trade activity is going to be is connected to that. But again, that class is not what you would call the kind of top Palestinian capitalist class. That is a very small group of people. And those, the majority of their large investments come from Gulf countries and Gulf backing holding companies. Um, again, there was that article by Adam Hanigi, I think in 2010, and the last three, four pages is just a very long table detailing every holding company and exactly how much percentage of that is owned by people in the Gulf. I find it very interesting to compare this because, of course, also the Palestinian population in Chile is very wealthy to sort of compare this involvement of different different factions of the diaspora because, of course, also the population in Chile mostly left before the Nakba. So their, their connection is a very different one and their involvement, of course, also to, due to geographic distance is is a fully different involvement. And I imagine, right, again, not unrelated, that their connection with the PLO is very much different. And I think that's the part where the idea of crony capitalism comes from, right? Those who were in the Gulf had the stronger connection to the PLO and hence had that kind of connection later on to being able to have monopolies and certain investment aspects. 
question then comes then why is there no effort? And again, I'm not really an expert on on uh, you know the diaspora in Chile. I mean, I know we have a soccer team called Palestino in in Chile, but in terms of I mean the let's call it the the political ideologies and how much they are close or unclose, happy or unhappy with Palestinian Authority and the Palestinian Liberation Organization actions the last 20, 30 years, I guess that that may be part of that has to do uh, with why they have not, for example, been involved in, in something. And I think this, I mean, this comes up a lot when people kind of discuss the future of Palestine, where we say that if you actually look at how the Israeli economy kind of grew in the first 20, 30 years after the establishment of the State of Israel, you'll see that a big part of that was two aspects, capital and skills of the Jewish diaspora. And again, if you look at Palestinians in the diaspora, you feel that skills and capital also exist. So again, nobody has a magical wand now and say, okay, let's do this. But I think if we are a little bit kind of positive and think in terms of the future, we can see kind of a comparable situation over there. Looking towards the future for the for the last question, since we're nearing our end, um, what is the what is the state of Palestinian labor unions today? Should we consider like strategic attacks on, for example, the it's not factually a union union in the classical sense, but the Union of Agricultural Work Committees that was declared a terrorist organization in 20, I think 2021, as an attack on, on unions and labor organizing as such? Or is there a different outlook? I think it was an attack on civil society, on Palestinian civil society. You know, I worked in Palestinian civil society and organizations for quite some time. I'll tell you, the most effective ones were people like Zamir, like Al-Haq, and like several of those organizations that were deemed uh, terrorist organizations. Um, so I think it was an attack generally on Palestinian civil society and those groups within the Palestinian society that have been able to kind of elevate a lot of what goes on in Palestine and reach different areas and different places. You know, people like Al-Haq had people working in Brussels and people working in the U.S. And I think part of something that Israel kind of is, is one of its strongest points and yet its weakness is narrative, right? I mean, it's very strong in creating the narrative of what it wants. In different societies, it plays in different ways, right? In the U.S., that's like Israel, a settler colonial state. You have it, you know, matching. And you say, yeah, we're the pioneers, just like you are the pioneers. You changed the desert into and made it bloom, just like we came, you know. So in other places, maybe doesn't make a lot of sense in places where you have the history of movement for self-determination and anti-colonial uh, um, struggles. People see it a little bit more clearly. But that narrative is very important for Israel. And so I think it was very important for them to target these organizations that touch on unionization, the role of labor, but also international law, Palestinian prisoners, socioeconomic conditions altogether. I think in terms of, of representation of Palestinian workers, technically you do have two, three large union groups. Unfortunately, I think 
a lot of them have been politicized in a way, not in a good way, in the sense that they have become parts of certain political parties. I think that's kind of limited a little bit the level of services that Palestinian workers can access. Um, interesting, again, the last time I was in Palestine this last summer, I met with people from the Rosa Luxemburg um, Institution in Palestine, and they had been working with several Palestinian labor organizations, labor unions, labor representatives, to talk a little bit more about what are the possibilities uh, of that. I don't know exactly where their projects have gone through, but I think, again, for several of the progressive institutions that are working in Palestine, this is something that has come up recently. But again, just to your previous point, not that I'm negating that it is an attack on Palestinian labor or labor organizing, but I would put it in the more general context of the attack on Palestinian civil society that aims to kind of take a lot of these uh, Israeli violations of international law, of norms of decency, of justice, whatever you want to call it, and put it out there for the world in in, in language that, you know, sometimes fits, you know, and sometimes hurts more than others. And it's a whole other debate as well. But I think that's something that Israel is, is very wary about. As always, thank you to all those of you who stayed and listened to the full episode. You can find further information on the speaker, Dr. Ibrahim Shikaki, as well as the bibliographical notes in the show notes. This interview was recorded on November 8, 2022. While current developments differ slightly from those of the last year, a better understanding of the economic structures of the occupied Palestinian territories, the situation of its workers, and the role of Palestinian elites, both in Palestine and its diaspora, is crucial to understand these events not as singular, exceptional moments in history, but rather as part of an ongoing and changing process and structure of power and wealth that has shaped the reality in Palestine over the last decades. My thanks for this episode go out to Dr. Ibrahim Shikaki, Dr. Brecht Smet, who provided the initial idea for this podcast, and lastly, Abdullah Bishnak and Nael Masood, whose songs Palestine and Anam Shibi Kalbi were featured. <laughs> Thank you.